look tonight in Hebrews chapter 10 of the message I call confidence. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul have no pleasure in him. We are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. May God bless the reading of his word tonight is my prayer. Confidence. Any athlete can tell you about it. If a golfer is standing over a putt or about to hit a shot, and he doesn't have any confidence in his line or in his ability to pull off that shot, if his confidence is shaken, Chances are he's going to miss the putt or he's not going to make a good shot. Any golfer can tell you that. Confidence in your club, your setup, what you're about to do has a big part in what you are about to do, whether success or fail. I had one thing in common with the famous basketball player Wilt Chamberlain. I could not make free throws to save my life. And uh, I, I, I played basketball. I did. I was on the team. I started my senior year. But, uh, you know, just 10 feet, nobody guarding you. You got plenty of time. You ought to be able to pull off a 10-foot shot and make it. Under the pressure of a ball game, though, I just never seemed to be able to muster up the confidence I needed and I missed a lot of times when I shouldn't missed. I can't explain it, but if you're a fisherman throwing a bait and you don't have confidence in that bait, the chances are you're not going to catch any fish with it. I can't explain that, but it's the truth. If you're a hunter trying to make a shot and you don't have any confidence in your ability to do that, chances are you're going to miss, or even worse, you're going to make a poor hit. It is true over and over and over and over again in all kinds of situations. Having confidence is very important. There are times when we have confidence for a while, but then something happens to shake our confidence, and it can be very difficult to get it back. Sometimes that happens because we're confident of something that isn't so. There are times, maybe you married folks can identify this a little bit, there are times when I have been absolutely 100% sure that I told Nancy about certain things. How many of you know that's an argument I never win, huh? I never win. The best I can come up with was that, okay, baby, I didn't tell you, but I thought it really loudly. <laughs> And uh, you should have picked it up. Uh, <clears throat> confident, absolutely sure that something happened, that it didn't happen. Sometimes it's just funny. Sometimes it's not funny at all. Sometimes you're confident that you paid a bill, only you found out that you didn't pay it. Confident that you had taken care of something, but you didn't take care of it at all. It's amazing how we can have confidence in things 
And that confidence is not founded. And once that happens to you a few times, you're absolutely confident that you know this person's name and you call them by that name and it's not their name. It shakes your confidence. You know what I'm telling you? There are times when we have confidence, but then things happen to let us know that maybe our confidence is not well-founded confidence. Now, for the writer of the book of Hebrews, this instruction, cast not away thy confidence, had a very particular meaning. You see, the writer of the book of Hebrews was writing to Jewish Christians People who, though they were Jewish, they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. They had put their faith, their trust in Him. They had trusted Him not only for time, but for eternity. They were absolutely confident that He was their long-awaited Messiah, and He was. They were also sure that they knew what believing in Jesus was going to do for their lives. But when you read the book of Hebrews, you'll find out that their confidence and how things were going to turn out um, was not at all the way things turned out. Perhaps like the disciples who came to Jesus with their very last question for him before he went back to heaven. Without this time restore the kingdom unto Israel. When you read the writings of the apostles, you will see them over and over again express confidence that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. Hear the words of Paul the apostle. We quote it all the time. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then they that are alive and remain. Isn't that what he said? No, that's not what he said. Then we who are alive and remain. Paul numbered himself among those who were anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. They say, well, Paul should have known better. No, he didn't. How could he have written about the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ if he knew that that was only going to be the blessed hope for a generation of Christians yet 20 20 generations or so yet unborn? Uh, The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has been a promise that he has made to all of his children throughout all their generations. So we can perhaps understand. Maybe these Jews still were thinking... Jesus is going to return. He's going to establish the kingdom, fulfill his promises to the nation. That wasn't happening. Instead, they found themselves being persecuted. They found themselves facing rejection from their friends and family. They found themselves as a part of a new, completely new form of worship, a form of worship that caused them to turn away from all the the ceremonies and all uh, the pomp that they had known in the worship of God in the temple. Everything 
uh, about those types and shadows that they'd grown up with all of their life, yet all of them significant, all of them beautiful in their observation. We can only imagine and close my eyes and see the Temple Mount ablaze on that last great night of the Feast of Tabernacles. We could only imagine what it was like to see those olive oil lamps, huge bats set ablaze by the old garments of the priests as they were burning them and illuminating the whole mountain and it rang then with the sounds of praise of God's people. We had never experienced that. They had. They had. When they believed in Jesus, they didn't expect the persecution. They didn't expect perhaps the hostility. They did not expect that Everything about their worship of God was going to change. When you read the book of Hebrews, you're very much reading an argument, and the argument is easy to follow. We can see what that is, and we can kind of surmise then from the argument that the Hebrew writer gave against what they were doing, what their argument actually was, what they were saying. We're Jewish. We believe in Jesus. Because we believe in Jesus and because we've abandoned the worship of God in the temple, all of my family's mad at me. My own mom and daddy won't talk to me. My friends that I've known all my life will have nothing to do with me. And it's all because I have left the temple and I'm now going to church. But hey, I can believe in Jesus and go back to the temple. I can believe in Jesus and go back to the Old Testament worship. I I can make mama happy and grandma happy. They'll all get off my case if I'll just go back to them. I'll still believe in Jesus. They're not going to change that. It's just this church stuff. Hebrews chapter 10 then is a summary of that whole argument that It's how he gets to that point uh, and responds to all of their thinking. And he's done that again and again and again in many different ways throughout the book. You can read it for yourself. It's only a few chapters long. I'm sure you have read it. But it is the crowning passage before us tonight of the Hebrews' argument. If this was a court, this would be called the summation. And the summation is this. Don't cast away your confidence, which hath great recompense, promise of reward. Don't cast away your confidence. Perhaps we ourselves need to occasionally remind ourselves of some of these same things that the writer of Hebrews reminded his audience. We too face a growingly skeptical and hostile world, and a lot of that has to do because we come to church. Many people today in our own land are reasoning, I don't need the church to believe in God. I don't need the church to go to heaven. I don't have to go to church in order to worship Jesus or believe in Him. I can stay at home and do that. The more I go to church, the more people are not going to like me. The more I go to church, the chances are that I'm going to be identified with everything that church stands for and believes. And We face increasing pressure in our culture today. A lot of people are giving into it, giving up on church altogether and turning away from it. I'm glad tonight that here it is, Memorial Day weekend. It's Sunday night. It's Faith at Five, and you folks are here. They're probably the last group that you might think needs to hear this. 
but I've seen people drop out of church who were faithful on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And so I think this message is appropriate as well. How do we maintain our confidence? The first thing the writer of Hebrews brings up is their concept of God. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ was the will of God. Identifying themselves with Jesus Christ through water baptism, that was the will of God. Leaving the Old Testament form and structure of worship that Jesus said the time is coming and now is. When neither in Jerusalem nor in this mountain shall they worship the Father. But now the time is coming, he said, and now is when God was seeking true worshipers, true worshipers who would worship him in spirit and in truth. They had identified themselves with the New Testament church. That was the will of God. So he tells them, you know the will of God. You were doing what God had commanded you to do. He reminds us then that God has a purpose, that God has a plan. That God is in control. That God has a will about how we are to live our life. The writer of the book of Hebrews was not alone in doing this. I love Isaiah chapter 40. If you want to turn over there, you can. Or you can just follow along with me as I I put the passages up on the screen. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1 God said to Isaiah, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all our sins, for all her sins, rather. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. I've never forgotten the admonition of an old pastor who said that the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I have to say, after doing this for 40 years, I have to do seem like a whole lot more of the latter than we do of the former. But we do need both. And it was a great time, I'm sure, after all of those passages of woe and destruction and judgment that Isaiah received the message from God. Comfort ye, my people. What are you going to tell them? Tell them that their warfare is over. Tell them that their iniquity is pardoned. Tell them that they've received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins in those times of judgment are over. Now with that said, Obviously, Israel is still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of all that. Because many of the promises that God made to Israel in Isaiah chapter 40 are only going to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. And then, then, they can confidently say that these passages have been fulfilled. He was certainly, though, speaking of a a specific time. And the promises that he makes are glorious promises. I want to run through them with you. Look at verse 10. He said, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. The Lord God is coming. And like a shepherd, he is going to rule over his people, tenderly caring for them. This is something that is, he is going to do for himself. He will gather his lambs, he said, with his arms. It is not going to be something that is delegated. No, God wanted his people to be comforted by the fact that his arms were open to them 
and that there was going to come a time when he was going to gather them together into himself. <laughs> Don't you look forward to the day when we can crawl up in Jesus' lap and he feel his arm around us to comfort us and to show his love for us. And we'll have unfettered access to the throne of God. He will gather then the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. He goes on then to talk about God's greatness. Verse 12, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. God speaks of all of the waters on this planet. Every sea, every ocean, every river, flood stage or not. And he can measure them in the hollow of his hand. How much water can you put in the hollow of, his, of your hand? Let me answer that question for you. Just a sip. Just a sip. And if you're a country boy or girl, you've had to do that a time or two in your life. Just a sip. But all the waters of this planet will fit in the hollow of God's hand. He measures out heaven with a span. What is a span? It's a span that you can reach with your hand. One of the many things my dad taught me was that you need to know what this measure is from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your little finger. Because if you know that, then you will always have a measuring instrument at hand. At hand, <laughs> that's pretty good. You'll always have a measuring instrument when you need one. Nine and a quarter inches, if you want to know. Yes, exactly, nine and one quarter inches. How many times have you, more times than I can count. It's kind of aggravating when you're fishing because it's a whole lot easier just to say that fish was this big. <laughs> when you got one of these that's nine and a quarter inches, you can measure it out pretty quickly. Well, you know, it's really not. It's, <clears throat> it comes in handy. God measures the heavens with the span of his hand. We're just now beginning to understand how huge the heavens really are. They're not that big to God. He can stretch his hand around the whole universe if he wants to. He comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Can you imagine how big of a scale it would take to weigh all of the dirt of the earth? wonder how many cubic yards that is. I don't know. God does. He tells us this so that we might be reminded about how great our God is. Sometimes our problems loom large. Our God's bigger. <laughs> Amen. Hollow of his hand, measure the heavens with a span, can hold the scales that the whole earth can be weighed upon. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. I love that one. <laughs> That doesn't mean that people are not significant to God. The cross of Jesus Christ tells us different than that. But it does tell us about nations. Nations are dropping a bucket to God. What's that mean? That means nations rise and nations fall. How many nations do you think God has seen rise? How many have you seen 
how many think he's seen Paul? Nations may loom large in our mentality and in our world, and they certainly do, along with the isles and everything along with them. Everything about nations and nationalities sometimes looms big. But there's a drop in the bucket to God. Verse 22, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof as grasshoppers. They said it was Christopher Columbus who discovered that the earth was round. Of course, we figured out they were wrong about that. Actually, the ancient Greeks knew that it was round as well. But right here, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah knew it was round too. He sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. You see, man tends to create what we call theologically an anthropomorphic view of the universe. Uh, that's a fancy word for what every teenager seems to know instinctively, that the universe revolves around them. Sun rises and sets for them. Uh, but we don't actually completely grow out of that. There is a sense in all of us that the universe ought to operate for me. But it doesn't. It is God that sits on the circle of the earth. And men rise and fall, and nations rise and fall. He brings the princes, the great men, to nothing. Names like nations have loomed large. There was a Hitler, a Napoleon. Name the name of anyone who has centered themselves in the world's view. They come and they go. And so in verse 25, it's no wonder then that God asks a question, To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? That bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names. That's the stars. God has a name for every star. He brings them out. By the names of the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power. Not one faileth. Night after night, God brings the stars out. That's what God tells them. Not one of them goes, is missing. Not one. He knows them all. And so Isaiah then gives us these incredible passages. And what are they designed to do? They're designed to comfort his people. What are they to be comforted in? They're to be comforted in the greatness of their God. In the midst of their difficult times, their hard times, they had experienced great times of judgment. There was more judgment to come, but there was one thing they could count on. Our God is real, and that He is great. And He is therefore a source of confidence for His people. Then comes the crowning verses of Isaiah 40. And I think... They'll sound familiar to you. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall run, faint, and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Sure gives that a different sense to us when we consider it in its context. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. Remember that when we are waiting on God, we are waiting on the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who is without equal. And no task is too great for Him. When we feel like our cause is not just, when we feel like that we are not being treated as we should be treated, and, and that happens. It happens especially. We feel that way especially when we have done the will of God. And that's how the writer of the book of Hebrews frames his discussion. You have done the will of God. I can understand it when I have messed up and I've been punished for it. I can understand it when I sassed my mama and I got a whipping. I deserved it. I deserved it. I can understand it when I lied like a dog and I got a spanking. I deserved it. When I was told to be home at a certain time and, and my bicycle just had wings and I was still going when I was supposed to be at home and I scared my mama and that was not a good thing to do. And I got a spanking. I deserved it. We understand when we do bad things and our life goes bad. But it's tough on God's people when we do what we know is the will of God and we suffer. We suffer because we did the will of God. It's tough. It was tough in the first century. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews was saying what he was saying. It's still tough on us today. But it happens. And so he calls on them, you keep your confidence. God is still God. He is still on the throne. He has a purpose. He has a plan. You do his will and you let him take care of the consequences of that. Our part is to do the will of God because he's trustworthy. But it does bring up our present experience for you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. You see, their confidence in who God is and, and what God is doing prompted them to need patience. That after they have done the will of God, God has promised them a reward, and the promise of His reward will not fail, even though it might be slow arriving. Hang with me for a moment. We're almost done. What's he saying to us? Well, I have a tendency to be a bit impatient. 
in the sense that when I do what I know God has led me to do, what he has commanded me to do in his word, and I'm being obedient to him, I want to see something happen. Does anybody else have a tendency to be like that? We have studied, we have prayed, we've done exactly what God taught us to do. Now we want to see the result. But the results are not always forthcoming. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we do things and God don't even send us a menu, a, a, a memo about it. Sometimes he, he is rewarding our service and he doesn't even bother to tell us. We don't even see it. It may be years before we even find out about it. And I'm convinced that for the most part, we're going to be walking around on streets that are paved with gold before we find out really what most of our service accomplished. We have need then of patience just because we're not seeing some kind of an immediate result, just because things are not working out the way that we intended, just because not only are we not being blessed, but we're suffering, doesn't mean that God's promise has failed. It means we have need of patience. Don't cast away your confidence because your present experiences are not what you anticipated. God is still God. His promises are certain. That's why he finishes up with the certainty of reward. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. You see, this was the principle that contradicted their thinking. They're thinking that we're believers in Christ and that's not going to change. But I don't have to stay in church. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to be a part of the church. I can go back to the temple. I can worship God. I can make grandma and mama happy and get them off my back. I, can, I don't need the church in order to serve God. I can serve God and be a Jew. I can worship God in the old way and still be a believer in Jesus Christ. But there was one big flaw in their thinking. The reward. The reward. Jesus, you see, promised in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. God was no longer to be served in the Old Testament temple. When Jesus Christ, and I believe he did it personally, when he rent that veil from top to bottom, it meant that that Old Testament way and approach to God was forever obsolete. It had been replaced by a new and living way. That was the whole sum and substance of the Hebrews' argument. If they went back, they would be given up their reward because God was not going to be served acceptably by those who turned back. In order to make his point, he quoted from some Old Testament passages. Now the just shall live by faith. That was one of them. He went on and said that, uh, that he uh, that turns back, uh, my soul, he said, shall have no pleasure in them. What God says by that simply was that he is not pleased by those who turn back, but by those who go forward. And so he warned them, yet a little while, and he who's coming will come and will not tarry. When I was growing up, my parents uh, had a 1964 Chevrolet, one of Impala. I'm pretty sure it was called a Bel Air. Bel Air, 1964. 
no air conditioner that I can remember. And I'm going to tell you something, riding in the back seat of a 1964 Chevrolet, either Bel Air, it wasn't Impala, I'm pretty sure it was Bel Air, with no air conditioning, sandwiched in between my older sister and my older brother, who of course got to sit by the window, I was the youngest, I was in the middle seat, didn't much matter where we went, it took forever. Took forever. I learned real quickly, my parents had a sense of a little while that was a lot different than my sense of a little while. And I think about that every time I read this passage, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. God has a sense of a little while that we don't have. Being on the other side of things, being on the driver's seat and behind the wheel, I can understand that uh, even if you're going to Midland, Texas, and it takes you 22 hours to get there, still it was a trip that it would have taken my great-grandparents several months to make. 22 hours was not a long, long trip at all. Ask a truck driver, he'll tell you, that ain't far. When we get to heaven, we're going to say, just like God. It's just been a little while. We don't even have to wait till we get to heaven. Time you get about 50 or so, you think, you know, 50 years is just a little while. So is 60. So is 70. Amen? Yet a little while. 80? Yeah. Yet a little while. It's just a little while. James knew what he was talking about when he said our life is like a vapor, a wisp, a sting, appears for a moment and vanishes away. Yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. Let me tell you something. We stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of us need to think about this from time to time. There's a whole lot of stuff that has really bothered us in this life and really occupied our attention that won't matter at all. Won't mean a thing. But what will matter to us is the reward. The old writer, hymn writer, asked a good question in that old song. Must I go and empty-handed? Must as I would have told to face my Savior so. Yeah, great song. Must I go and empty-handed? Yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. Jesus prompt finished up Revelation 22. I, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. The reward. The reward. Don't cast away your confidence. You're doing the will of God. Keep doing it. Don't quit. Don't stop. You're doing what God wants you to do. Keep on. Keep going. Don't. Cast away your confidence because it has great recompense of reward. You're looking for that reward tonight. If you're not saved, of course, it's, that's, that's not your concern. Uh, the only way to have that reward is to be a believer in Jesus Christ and to be serving Him in the way that He would tell you to serve, living for Him in the way that He tells us for to live. 
Maybe tonight you need to receive Christ as your Savior. What good news it is to share the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, but he didn't say that. He rose again. Gives a simple message. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He commands us, gives us clear instruction. Be baptized. Be a disciple. Make disciples. Oh, God, help us tonight to follow the instructions. Cast not away your confidence. Let's stand together, please.